yeah, so thank you very much for, uh, for letting me take some leave. It's been wonderful. Uh, headed over to South Australia for a few weeks and uh, for a few days, and it was lovely. It's nice being with family, especially when they're the ones that cook. It's good, isn't it? Um, but yeah, so thank you for that. Um, also, after the service today, we do have our fellowship lunch, which is on the second Sunday of each month. So it's a BYO. So if you wanted to stay for lunch afterwards, go and grab something and come back if you didn't bring it with you already. Um, sorry, we didn't sort of quite get the info out there very early this time. Um, but yeah, we're going to do it every second Sunday of the month from, from now on for until we stop. Um, so yeah, please feel welcome to uh, go grab something and come back if you want to hang around for lunch together as family. Um, I'd also like to make my welcome to Tim um, McLevy. Um, great to have you back, Tim. Um, I know that you've still got some changes ahead. We'll be keeping on praying for you. And, uh, and Carolyn, it's great to have you back too. Um, but please refrain from speaking to Carolyn much because it will be quite tiring for her. So, um, yes, just be care, caring towards her in that way. Um, and before we get into the message today, I wanted to pray for our Year 12s who um, have some, uh, some, some exams coming up in the very near future. A lot of them have less than two weeks of school left, I believe. Um, so, yeah, for Jordan and for um, Brody. Um, and any other Year 12s amongst us today? No? All right. Do you guys want to come forward? I just want to pray for you. I know it's putting you on the spot and all. I'm going to stand up here. You can stand down there. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You always told them to do that. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to bless these, uh, these young men who, Lord, love you. And uh, Lord, they have been a great witness to you in their schools. And that, Lord, is uh, one thing that's coming to a close very soon. But more importantly for them and for what they're probably um, concerned about and what is um, taking a lot of their time and attention right now is uh, their Year 12 exams that are coming up. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help them in their moments of study leading into these exams that, Lord, you'd guide them to the right areas where they need to um, uh, study and, and work on and, and memorise. And, and uh, Lord, we just pray that during their exams, you would give them a calm peace that is only from you. And that, Lord, you would give them the recall that they would be our trust in the work that they've put in over their entire schooling life. Um, and this moment seems like a very pivotal one for many Year 12s as they work out what they're doing from this point on. And so, Lord, we pray that you would guide them uh, in the next steps of life also, that you would continue to direct their paths and that they would continue to seek you first and that all these other things would be added to them. And so we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good luck, guys. Well, today we begin a brand new series uh, in Ephesians, which I have titled... United. Because the church's unity in Christ is such an important concept to grasp, to hold to, uh, to hold firm to, and to maintain. And that is the central message of Ephesians. As the church grows, the members of the body must also grow together 
and remain unified in our call, our purpose, in who we are in Christ, and be unified in all the different roles we play as members of the body of Christ expressed in our context here in the local church. The book of Ephesians enables us to view God's creation almost like from an alpine attitude. Um, Sorry, from an alpine altitude. When we study this book, it is as though we've climbed a high mountain peak because the book gives us the kind of perspective on what God has created for us. Now, I'm not sure if many of you can recall the opening scenes of The Sound of Music. My dad can certainly recall them because every single year they'd go on holidays when he was young and they'd head over to Adelaide on holidays. And for about 10 years in a row, they would go to the cinema because where they lived in Brim, Warwickville, there was no picture cinema there. And when they'd go there, dad's mother my nan would choose the movie that they were going to watch. And every single year, I was like, oh, The Sound of Music, haven't seen that one, that sounds lovely, let's go and watch that. And she did the same thing for about a decade. Um, so my dad can probably recall these, uh, these opening scenes of this movie quite well, but if you haven't seen the opening move scenes of The Sound of Music, it's got one of the main characters, Maria von Trapp, standing high in a meadow in the Austrian Alps, looking over the valleys and the mountains around. It's a little bit like what Paul's doing for us here in this book. Yet the creation that Ephesians opens up to our vision isn't mountains and valleys but the church and its position and importance in the panorama of God's program for humankind. The church is the subject of Ephesians. The church began on the day of Pentecost and it will end at the rapture. The church is one organism that God has created from individual believers in this age Believers whom God has united in a vital relationship with Christ. See, the church was in the plan of God from eternity past. It was not something that God thought up on the day that Jesus Christ died because the Jews had rejected the Messiah. It was always part of God's plan. And when we see that God brought the church into existence, it's easy to believe that Satan will never destroy the church, as indeed Jesus said, because God brought it into existence. So there's no way Satan's going to destroy it, right? And yet the church isn't complete. God is constructing it in the present by his eternal power. We must grasp the truth of the eternal divine power presently available to build the church and to defeat its foes. Ephesians helps us do that. And it reveals the importance, the important place that the church has in God's eternal plan for history. In the past, he conceived of it as part of his eternal plan. In the present, he is constructing it with his eternal power. And in the future, he will bring it to complete fulfillment of his eternal purposes. And so Paul begins by addressing the people 
who are the church and who are through our faith in Jesus, knowledge of who we are and the guaranteed position that we have because of that, because we are part of the church, because we are believers of Jesus through faith in in Jesus. Paul then expands on the behaviours of the church, the people who are the church in all different situations. You see, the church must maintain unity as it grows. It must sanctify every relationship as it makes its confession to this world and it must stand firm against its spiritual enemies as it fights with Satan's forces. And the church cooperates with God as he builds it in three ways. First, it must remain united itself. Second, it must present a message of purity and holiness to the world by its sanctified relationships. And third, it must fight God's enemies after putting on the whole armour of God. This is sort of the trajectory of the book of Ephesians. And I guess you could summarise the book like this. Ephesians reveals that the church is part of God's eternal plan and it grows as a result of God's power working through believers' lives as they overcome their spiritual enemies. I am looking forward to this series, as I hope you are. So let's get into Ephesians with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's the author of this book, who we all know well, He has written half of the New Testament. Um, He identifies himself as the writer and as an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This letter then addresses the saints or the holy ones who are Christians in Ephesus, which is the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, where Paul had ministered for three years during his third missionary journey. He knew this city and the people very well. But as with most of the epistles, the expectation of wide circulation to many churches was also in mind and its writing sort of conveys that because there's no personal references in this letter. So Paul has probably thought from the very beginning, this is for the church, but I'm going to start addressing Ephesus, which was a central area of that region and then would have been distributed from there. And he makes special mention of the believers who are faithful in Christ Jesus, a term, a favourite term of Paul's. And what he then goes on to explain, what it means to be in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, strikes the keynote of the entire epistle. From that prolific germ ramifies the branches of the oaks of the forest, it seems. like That's how central this in Christ concept is for Paul through this letter. He then wishes grace and peace to his readers, as he so often does in his letters. And then Paul begins the main part of his letter by revealing the spiritual blessings that God has planned for all believers in his Son. Which in the original Greek, everything more more than what we're covering today, right up to verse 14, was actually one sentence. So from this point on to verse 14, no stopping, one sentence. 
but we're going to stop and break it up into little chunks today, as we do with English grammar as well. Um, So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is our position in Christ. We are blessed. Let that sink in for a moment. We are blessed. Do you feel blessed today? You feel blessed today? Because if you're in Christ, you are blessed, right? And as we are blessed by God through Christ, we in turn should also bless or to praise God for giving us these blessings. The spiritual blessings that Paul speaks of are benefits that relate to our spiritual life in contrast to our physical life. In Israel, God's promised blessings were mainly physical, but in the church, they are mainly spiritual and conferred by the Holy Spirit. Since God has already given us these things, we do not need to ask Him for them, but should believe that we have them by faith and give thanks for them. And our union with Christ by saving faith places us in the heavenly realms. And Paul then opens up a can of worms that has kept people in debate ever since, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he he wrote the words, He chose us. And so we come to the doctrine of election. Who's a fan of this uh, argumentative topic Yep, a few fans here, okay, a few few, uh, knowing glances amongst us. John Stott writes, Everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. Didn't I choose God? Somebody asks indignantly, to which we must answer, Yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God, God had first chosen you. But didn't I decide for Christ? Ask somebody else, to which we must reply, yes, indeed you did and freely, but only because in eternity God had first decided for you. Now this, I believe, simplifies it somewhat. So I dug a little deeper, and as I was studying this passage on election, I came across a paper written, actually, by one of my Bible college lecturers. And this was his summary... God in eternity past, for no other reason than his own design and will, selected certain individuals out of the mass of fallen humanity to be the recipients of a comprehensive spiritual package, which includes their justification and adoption. This is an action totally free on God's part, without any external influence, which is ultimately purposed to bring praise to himself, particularly to his grace. So that sounds like God does all the work. And Calvinists would probably mostly agree. But I had this question, what is our part? What part do we play in our salvation? Was my lecturer saying that we don't play a part? (laughs) 
Well, it sort of came across that way as I was reading his very, very dry, deep, 38-page-long summary and presentation of the first three verses of this passage, verses 1 to 3 of, of Ephesians. Um, it was heavy. But I thought, hey, I've got his phone number, I'm going to call him up. <laughs> so I called my lecturer and I said that exact question to him. What, I read your paper, it was from 2000, but he remembered it well, it's part of his doctoral thesis. Um, and uh, I said, it, it sort of reads like we don't have a part to play. And he said, um, his answer was this, God takes the initiative and we respond to that initiative. It still requires us to repent and respond to the gospel. We are not passive in our salvation, just as we are not passive in our sanctification. And we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And I thought that was a great balance. God initiates, he doesn't have to, but he's chosen to do it. He initiates, and what's our job? What's the part that we pay in our salvation? Repent, believe, and respond. We do have a part to play in our salvation. God initiates, we respond. And so um, we do pay, pl play a part. We then had a, a conversation about Calvinism and Arminianism. These are sort of the two opposing views on election, if you like. They've sort of been duking it out for centuries. Um, and we were in agreement, actually, that both are inadequate systems of theology. Uh, I'm not a subscriber to a system. The only thing I subscribe to is my Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, not Calvin or any other system. Now, I know that there's lovely people here who would say, yes, I'm a Calvinist, because you probably agree with some of the tenets of Calvinism, um, but I always like to identify myself with Jesus first. And so, as, as far as systems go, they all have their flaws, and we should be mature enough to recognise that there are some flaws in all of them, but we probably sort of might lean towards one or the other if we're all pushed on the finer points of theology. Um, but I just like to say, hey, look, I'm a Christian. No system works for me other than what the Bible says, and that's what I follow first. But let me say, if you are a Calvinist, I love you. Um, and if you uh, are an Arminian, I love you too. Um, but I guess that's where I land, is I don't subscribe to a system. Um, and that's funny enough where my lecturer also was very clear on too. So anyway, great, great, great chat. Um, but the reason this de debate continues and the reason why there is not an actual position that we can all just go, yep, that's black and white, that's what it is, it's not fully resolved in Scripture. That's why. Another commentator writes... Election involves a paradox that the New Testament does not seek to resolve and that our finite minds cannot fathom. Paul emphasises both the sovereign purpose of God and man's free will. And you see, when, when we Christians trusted Christ as Saviour, 
we became a member of the redeemed race within humankind of which Jesus Christ is the head and God has ordained that all the elect should be under Christ's authority. Harry Ironside once wrote, Whosoever will, let him come. Every man is invited, no one need hesitate. Some may say, well, I may not be of the elect and so it would be useless for me to endeavour to come for the door will not open for me. But God's invitation is absolutely sincere. It is addressed to every man, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. We read that in Revelation 22:17. If men refuse to come, Harry continues, if they pursue their own godless way down to the pit, whom can they blame but themselves for their eternal judgment? The messenger addressed himself to all, the call came to all, the door could be entered by all, but many refused to come and perished in their sins. Such men can never blame God for their eternal destruction. The door was open, the invitation was given, they refused, and he says to them sorrowfully, Yea, will not come unto me, that ye might have life. Don't you love old English? I don't. Um, he continues, but see, as the invitation goes forth, every minute or two, someone stops and says, what is that? The way to life is the reply. Ah, that I might find the way to life. I have found no satisfaction in this poor world. We read, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. I should like to know how to be free from my sin, how to be made fit for the presence of God. And as such, one draws near and listens, and the Spirit of God impresses the message upon his heart and conscience, and he says, I am going inside. I will accept the invitation. I will enter that door. And he presses his way in, and it shuts behind him. As he turns about, he finds written on the inside of the door the words chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What? He says. Had God his heart fixed on me before ever the world came into being? Yes. But he could not find it out until he got inside. You see, you can pass the door if you will. You can trample the love of God beneath your feet. You can spurn His grace if you are determined to do it. But you will go down to the pit and you will be responsible for your own doom. Do you get what Harry was trying to say? It is all out of God's love towards us his love on his behalf towards us that we respond. That's what we respond to. And we do all respond. As this excerpt from one of Harry's sermons makes clear, we do all respond. We either enter that door or we refuse. For those that enter the door, for those of us who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, when that door closes behind us and we're on the side of eternity and we look back, there's our name written. That's what Harry's saying. And for us, we can see that in verse 5, where Paul says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons 
through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Predestination is the means by which God chose us. God chose us by marking us out beforehand. Predestination looks more at how than the who of election. God predetermined the final destiny of the elect that we would be his full-fledged sons. Jesus Christ was the agent who made the adoption possible for his, by his death. And you know, sons adopted in Roman culture received the same rights and privileges as children born into the family. And likewise, our adoption does not imply a, an inferior status in relation to God. God predestined us to adoption because he delighted to bless us in this way. But it's important to make this distinction. You do not get into God's family by adoption. You get into his family by regeneration, our new birth. See, adoption is the act of God by which he gives us, born ones, an adult standing in the family. Did you see how, it's, that, how that works? We are not predestined, we do not get into God's family by adoption, we do that by regeneration, when we respond to that invitation of God. And he does it so that we might immediately begin to claim our inheritance and enjoy our spiritual wealth. We don't have to wait. That's now. And I also want to make it clear that the Scriptures never state that God has predetermined the fate of the non-elect. The emphasis of Scripture is on the possibility of anyone trusting in Jesus Christ and receiving salvation. Whereas God has positively decreed the salvation of some, He permissively leaves the non-elect to their self-chosen rebellion and its natural consequences of punishment. But He always leaves the possibility open that and this is the focus of Scripture, the possibility is that anyone might trust in Jesus Christ and receive salvation. That's the focus of Scripture. That's how the Gospel is portrayed through the Scriptures, that anyone might respond to the invitation of Christ, might respond to the Gospel. And so that's why evangelism is so important. Because you don't know who the elect are. I don't know who the elect are. Only God does. And how might God reach them? He might choose to use us to bring them hope. That's our job. That's why it's so important that we view every single person who is not yet in the family of God, in His kingdom, we view every person as someone who could come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. See, the ultimate goal of predestination and election 
is that believers will contribute to the praise of the magnificence of God's undeserved favour, the glory of His grace that He has shown towards us. Since God loves His Son, believers who are in Christ can rejoice that we too are the objects of God's love. Paul then explains some of the lavish benefits of responding to the grace and love of God. Verse 7, he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Redemption means release from slavery. It involves buying back and setting free by paying a ransom price. Jesus Christ has redeemed us from sin. That is, He has set us free from the spiritual consequences of sin, eternal death and from present slavery to sin. The blood which represents the life of the perfect sacrifice had to flow out of Him for this to happen. The immediate result of our redemption is that God has forgiven our wrongdoings. And so we are accepted eternally into the family of the redeemed. Yet in that family relationship, we will time and time again need to be forgiven in the sense of being restored, not into the family, but into fellowship with the Father and Son, like what we learnt through 1 John. Jesus Christ's death accomplished our redemption. Providing a Redeemer was the extent to which God was willing to go for us. God's grace was that great. The gift of Jesus Christ did not exhaust the supply of God's grace. Rather, that gift is evidence of the extent of God's favour to us. God has given abundant grace to us. He has lavished on us not just the bare essentials, not just the bare essential amount needed. He's lavished on us so, so much. And I don't have time to extrapolate all of the benefits of Christ's death, which Paul, he doesn't elaborate on here either. But as I was preparing this passage, I went to look for them. And I had to cut them out from this message because I found 43. Would you like them all? Maybe another time. We don't have time today. But I think his words, riches of grace lavished upon us, is a sufficient enough all-encompassing phrase, right? We can go into the 43 another time. Maybe that's something you might want to do this afternoon, is think through and write down all the benefits that we receive from Christ's death. That might be a fun thing to do later on. See, God lavished His grace on us in His infinite wisdom, having insight in advance about how we would respond to it. The wisdom and insight that Paul speaks of in verse 8 are God's, not ours, although we too are gracious recipients of God's wisdom and insight as we grow more like Him and as we fellowship more with Him and His Word. In verse 9, Paul speaks to this mystery. 
but it's not a sort of Scooby-Doo type mystery. It's not that kind of mystery. It refers to a truth that was previously hidden, but has now been made known by divine revelation. The mystery revealed here is God's purpose to bring everything into submission to Jesus Christ in the future. This is God's plan. And it refers to the millennial reign of Christ on earth during which everything will be under his rule. And we're not there yet. That happens after the rapture. And even though in one sense everything is under Christ's authority now, Jesus Christ will be openly recognized as head of all things in a more direct and obvious way in the Messianic kingdom. Everyone and everything will acknowledge and respond to his authority then. And so I want to hone in on the concept of unity here as I sort of come to the close of my message. Because verse 10 is all about unity. And really that's what this whole series is about. Unity in Christ. And we will see that with the various roles that we perform in the church and in our homes. But I want to make a special focus on a particular issue that is facing us all this week. On Saturday, we are being asked to cast our vote in the referendum. And what I've observed over the last several months in the lead-up to this is that it is a force for division. The whole discussion is a force for division, not unity. God's plan, as we've just read from verse 10, is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Yet this seems to be doing the opposite by dividing people along racial lines. The voice enshrines the designation of race into our constitution, dividing people who are from one heritage and background as opposed to everyone else. And to me, that is a force for division and would stand against this passage and stands against God's words and purposes. Signaling people out and treating them differently because of their heritage or just other distinctions is never appropriate, I believe, unless it is sin. It's okay to call somebody out and divide along lines of sin, but I don't think it's okay on anything else. There's only one race, the human race. God looks at us all with equality and equity his son died for each and every one of us regardless. So our approach to all people as Christians should emulate God's approach, love and grace to all equally. Now I know that saying anything on a voice is going to cause a different opinion from a lot of people and could potentially drop me in hot, hot water by saying anything. But I'm okay about that because I think there's important things that we should understand and I understand that as a white male, some people might label me as racist for not wholeheartedly supporting the voice. But I've done my research and have looked into it a fair bit this week and in the months leading up to this 
And there are so many Aboriginal men and women who say the same. My question is, are they racist? There are also many Christian Aboriginal men men and women who are opposed to the voice. But some Christians also, and rightly, see it as an issue of justice and don't divide down those racial lines. And I've heard many cite passages such as Isaiah 42 to support the role of Christians actively pursuing social justice in the world today. So I just wanted to quickly look at that passage. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is speaking of Jesus. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And many people view that the voice is one thing that we can do to bring forth justice. But I have a challenge when using a passage like this, as so many have, to support the idea of justice, because justice is a very interesting concept in this passage from Isaiah. It's the Hebrew word mishpat, and it speaks of societal order as well as meaning legal equity. The Gentiles, that is everyone who is not a Jew, that's you and I, most of us, I would assume, would not find this justice on their own, but the servant, this passage of Jesus Christ, would bring it to them. We cannot find this justice on our own. Jesus Christ is the only one who will bring it. So what's God's timeline then for that? Well, understanding this passage in context, we clearly see that Jesus Christ will bring his justice And he will bring his justice at the second coming. And this is what Paul is speaking of in verse 10 here in Ephesians as well. Bringing justice in this passage from Isaiah is the role of Christ, not ours. We can't bring that justice. Only Christ can and he will at the second coming. The eager anticipation of justice should be focused on the coming of Jesus. And that's what Paul wants us to understand also. So I have a question, will the voice bring justice? Well, given our political climate, I see it as extremely unlikely. It's more likely going to entrench the progressive paradigm of victimhood. One prominent female Aborigine says, if we keep telling Aboriginal people that they are victims, we're effectively removing their agency and then we're giving them the expectation that someone else is responsible for their lives. That is the worst possible thing you can do to any human being to tell them that they are a victim without agency. I love our Aboriginal brothers and sisters in our country as I love every other person in our country. For those who are the most at need, most at risk, the most vulnerable, we should be stepping in and helping where we can. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think the voice will do that. 
So what should you do on Saturday or whenever you might cast your vote this week? As in all these things, when it comes to our civil responsibilities, we should bring it to Christ in prayer. Bring this decision to God in prayer. Seek his guidance. And as in all things, submit ourselves to his will. Do as much research as you can so you are fully informed. There are some great resources out there from Christians who represent both sides. I can send you a link to an hour or so long debate on YouTube that presents both sides from Christians. But ultimately, it's between you and God. It's your conscience. It's your decision. It's what you have to decide before God as the right way to cast your vote, yes or no, on Saturday. So I'm not going to tell you how to vote. It's between you and God, so seek Him. And as you seek Him, may you bring unity where there is division. May you bring hope where there is none. May your life reflect the glory of our Creator. I am eagerly anticipating Christ's justice and his unity of all things on heaven and earth. And so I say, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and how you value so highly the unity amongst the church. And right now, the the political climate of our nation is one that is divided. And this referendum is only going to be another source of division, regardless of what the outcome may be. And so, Lord, I pray that we would seek you first. And that, Lord, we would look forward to the justice which you will bring, Jesus, when you return. And so may our eyes be fixed firmly on the hope that we do have of your justice extending to all the earth in heavens and on earth. And so, Lord, we say with expectant hearts, come, Lord Jesus. But until that point in which you choose to return, Lord, we do live in this culture that you've placed us in. And so, Lord, may we be bringers of hope in as many ways as we possibly can. May we reflect the grace that you have towards others around us and may we do whatever we can to bring unity where there may be division and, Lord, to bring your love and grace. And so I pray that you would guide us as we cast our vote in this referendum this week. And that, Lord, we ask your will be done. And so we submit ourselves to your sovereignty, to your love, to your grace, and to your justice. We thank you that there are voices speaking out for love and grace in all of this too. And may we add to that chorus, not the chorus of division. Lord, guide us, we ask. 
Amen.